Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from Percy'sGrowRoom.com. Just a quick intro for this one, because I want to get straight in for this epic interview with Keith Strupp, who is the founder of Normal. Uh, you can find more about Normal on their website, which is Normal without the A, so N-O-R-M-L dot org, and you'll be able to find everything you want to know about Normal right over there on their website, if you don't know anything about them already. But anyway... Roll a fat one, get super high, and let's get stuck in for this interview with Keith Strop. Enjoy, and I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. Hello, good evening, Keith. Is this Mackie? That's right. I, I am Mackie. Uh, I'm from the UK. Uh, we'll quickly introduce ourselves, considering we're here, introducing ourselves. <laughs> so I'm Mackie, I'm from the UK, host of the show, and we have the co-host Monkey. Monkey, you want to say hi? Hey, Keith, Monkey down here in the southeast US along the Gulf of Mexico. How's it going today, man? Man, you're coming from two pretty different locations. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. We're an international show. We have panelists from uh, uh, Canada as well as Australia. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they couldn't make it today with time constraints. But yeah, we try and cover the world if we can. Good. Yes. Uh, but obviously, uh, we're in places where cannabis and growing cannabis is still illegal. So we have to stay behind the avatars, unfortunately. Ah, I see. <laughs> you remember uh, those days, yeah. We, yeah we've yeah. had that for about 80 years in this country, but we're finally turning the corner. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is because of you. You know, before we start, I just want to say, you know, thank you for all the work you've done with Normal throughout these years, mate. You've, you've been a trailblazer along the way and changed a lot of things. So thanks for everything you've done for the cannabis community. Well, it's very kind of you. In fact, it's been a, a fascinating journey. Mm, I'm sure it has. So do you quickly want to introduce yourself so our listeners know who you are? Yes. Uh, my name is Keith Strop. I'm a public interest lawyer based in Washington, D.C., and I founded Normal back in 1970. Uh, and I currently serve as legal counsel to the organization. Wow. That's very impressive. You know, founding normal. I mean, it's such a huge organization and a well-respected organization as well. And you were the founder, the guy who started it all back in the day. Well, it it had a lot to do with the Vietnam War. Uh, My generation in this country uh, were largely radicalized by the war in Vietnam and by the anti-war movement. And um, I can get into that later if you want to, but it certainly, I don't think I would have ever uh, been willing or interested in challenging prohibition, but for the anti-war movement. Right. Okay. So, so let's start there right at the beginning. Then. So, what made you want to form Normal in the first in the first place? Well, um, I graduated Georgetown Law School in 1968, and it was literally right at the height of the anti-war movement in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a lot of my contemporaries, I had friends who had been drafted and sent to Vietnam and came back in body bags. A couple of fraternity brothers of mine, undergraduate fraternity brothers. So by the time I got to law school, what my generation were mostly doing were trying to find an excuse to stay out of the war. Mm-hmm. And I, in one way, you stayed out back then. They weren't interested in women. 
But if you were a male and you were 18 or older, uh, you either had to be a full-time student or you were drafted. And I mean, drafted just within a few weeks. Wow. So uh, I, that was part of my motivation to go to law school. I suspect I would have gone anyway, but certainly one powerful motivation was to stay out of the damn draft. Well, when I graduated Georgetown in, in 68, unfortunately, I was still eligible for the draft for a couple of years. And I had the help of some good lawyers from an organization called the National Lawyers Guild. And um, they were trying to assist those of us who were at the time called draft evaders or draft avoiders or draft dodgers. They had all kinds of names for us. Um, and they offered me two or three choices. One, they were willing to put me in touch with some psychiatrists in uh, Baltimore uh, who were willing to say I was gay. And back then, it wasn't don't ask, don't tell. If you were gay, they didn't want you in the military. Right. So I, I thought that was a fairly good option. <laughs> but I was married with a small child at the time, and my wife was just not happy with that option. Oof. So the second option they gave me was they could put me in touch with some people in Canada. There's a long tradition of American dissidents going across our northern border. And Canada usually is very welcoming to that. In fact, uh, Pierre Trudeau, the, uh, the father of the current uh, premier of uh, Canada, had mm -hmm. even made a public statement saying that any, any people who wanted to leave the country to oppose the war would be welcome in Canada. The problem with that option, there was no guarantee one would ever be allowed back in the country. Um, and that seemed like a, a, at my young age, I wasn't really comfortable making that kind of a commitment that I could never mm -hmm. come back in my country. Well, the third option, um, they told me they thought they might be able to get me a what, what was called in the draft act a critical skills deferment. I know this is a long way around to answer your question, but I will no, do carry on, please. I'm enjoying the answer so far. I'll get <laughs> too, man. Go for it. I'll get back on topic. Um, at any event, I had been offered a job when I graduated Georgetown for something called the National Commission on Product Safety. It's a it was a presidential commission created by Congress and. Uh, uh, the president appointed uh, half the people and Congress appointed the other half. And it sounded very important. Now, it, in truth, it wasn't nearly as important as it sounded. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, by sending that application to my local draft board, um, they said, no, if, if what you're doing is that important, then you can serve the two years you would have been in the army. You can serve it doing that important job there in Washington, D.C., well, the reason that's relevant is um, it ended up that the commission had been created because uh, of the work of consumer advocate Ralph Nader. I'm sure you all know Ralph or at least mm -hmm. know something of him. Um, Ralph had written Unsafe at Any Speed about the Corvair, and he'd by that point come to Washington, and every year he had three or four young graduates from Harvard and Yale and other top law schools who would come down. They called them the Nader's Raiders. Well, uh, when we went to work at the commission, our job was supposed to be to identify unsafe household products uh, so Congress could hold hearings and identify the problems and try to pass laws to protect consumers. Um, I'd never really thought about public interest law, didn't really know what it was, but uh, the public at that time didn't had never heard of this new commission, most people. But when they had an unsafe product or a product they wanted to complain about, they'd heard about Ralph. So they they would write a letter to Ralph Nader. And Ralph invited us uh, to come up to his office two or three days a week. We were only a few blocks away. 
and go through his mail so we could identify the products that we wanted to focus the commission's work on. Now, why that's important is the commission only lasted for two years. But during that time, I was incredibly turned on to the idea of public interest law. I'd never thought about it before. Uh, but I, I wasn't that interested in product safety. By that point, I had first started smoking marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School in 1965. So I guess wow. I was smoking for something like 55 years or something. <laughs> um, and uh, in any event, um, you know, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to legalize marijuana. And I was young and idealistic and didn't realize perhaps that it was a bigger task than we may have thought when we started. But uh once the commission ended, I was too old to be drafted. And so for the first time in my life, I had a choice. What do I want to do with my life and my career? And so I pulled some friends and colleagues together and uh, we established normal. And because of my work as a consumer advocate with the Product Safety Commission, we intentionally set up normal to represent marijuana consumers, not the industry, not those who grow and sell and not the people who you know, a lot of them are making some pretty big bucks in, in mm. parts of the U.S. now in the newly legal state legal industry. But we wanted to represent the interest of marijuana smokers. So um, I set up Normal in late 1970 as a consumer lobby, and uh, that's that's how we got there. Wow, that's a cool story. So pretty much to avoid the draft then, this is all oh, you started. It with, was yeah. two things. It was partly to avoid the draft, but also... As a result of that experience, uh, I was turned on to this concept of using your law degree instead of representing a handful of individual clients to use it to try to impact public policy. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed to me to be an exhilarating option that I had never thought of before. Wow. So if you if you wasn't a cannabis user at that point, you would have gone into some different section of, of public Oh, I'm law. sure I, I would have done something totally different with, with that question. But by that point... Um, you know, I was enjoying smoking. I've been smoking for mm -hmm. six or seven years by that point. Nice. But I thought cannabis users were lazy. But you, you went through college and got a, a degree in law while you was a cannabis consumer? Hmm. <laughs> well, I, I always like to tell people when I'm uh, giving lectures or speaking someplace, I make a point to uh, let them know that I first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School. I, I know Georgetown's very proud of that. But <laughs> <laughs> so how old are you when you were a freshman in college? Uh, in law school, I think I was 27, maybe. No, no, no. I was like 24, I guess, when I was a freshman at Georgetown. I was 27, right. I think, when I graduated. Okay. So reasonably, um, you're into your adult age when you started to consume cannabis then. Yeah, I was actually um, much older. Most people who smoke marijuana, in this country at least, um, when you ask them about when they first smoked, they were teenagers or mm -hmm. they were young adults, but they were far younger than I was. I was kind of, I was raised on a farm in Southern Illinois. And so um, I was a typical American. I enjoyed alcohol more than I needed <laughs> at the time, for sure. And uh, I remember in my undergraduate days at the University of Illinois, um, I, I was in a fraternity and we knew there were a handful of people in our fraternity who were smoking weed, but I wasn't even curious enough to try it. You know, I was mm -hmm. enjoying getting drunk and having hangovers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was only when I got to Georgetown that I finally was on a ski trip with some friends and somebody brought along a couple of joints and 
I realized, man, this is an interesting high. It's a different kind of high than alcohol. Mm-hmm. Didn't give you a hangover and seemed to seemed to allow you to be more creative. And to this day, I still feel that way about it. If I've got to uh, write a, an original talk or do something like that, I will often lock myself into my office, my home office, uh, where I am right now, um, and just get stoned up to the gills and write out <laughs> every thought that comes into my head. Now, get up the next morning and I read it and I laugh at myself because some of the stuff that you can say, I mean, you can see I was really getting a little stoned there. But <laughs> I also am almost without question, always surprised that some of the most important, insightful points that I want to make in that talk, uh, I should have been able to come up with without getting stoned, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so still to this day, I, I I enjoy getting stoned just to relax, but I also get stoned if I want to be creative. It's like it oils the cogs in the brain. You know, it's like the yeah. brain just works much smoother. It, it with frees, a little bit of, it frees yeah. things up, I think. We, we're mm-hmm. all trained where we, we limit ourselves unnecessarily, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, weed seems to open that back up. I have to mm-hmm. agree with you on that. Yeah, when I'm when I'm trapped sometimes in a creative bit, yeah, a little bit of weed, let yep. your mind go free, uh, just give yourself permission to make a few mistakes and all of a sudden the, the creativity comes back. Yeah, that's right. Now, you, I, I would say this, always check yourself in the next one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So you're in the late 70s and you just started normal, you know, and you're beginning the foundations of the organization at what point did you did you receive any kind of a backlash or stigma what did your family think and your friends think did they all think you were crazy you know i think yeah my family and friends thought that i had probably gone off the deep end or something at the time (laughs) my my parents were i grew up on a 160 acre farm in southern illinois my parents were both devout southern baptists um so, you know, they couldn't understand what the hell I was doing. <laughs> we're worried that I was wasting my legal education this way. Mm. And in fact, I must say that, it, that did enter my mind. I mean, when I was starting normal, one of the people that I first approached to make sure that I wasn't doing something absolutely stupid and self-destructive was former Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Uh, Ramsey's father, uh, Tom Clark, was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, he took a leave of absence, took senior status so that his son could take over as attorney general for Lyndon Johnson. Right. He uh, he resigned from that position at some point and became a leader in the anti-war movement in this country. In fact, there was a famous period where he and Jane Fonda traveled to Hanoi (laughs) for there were a few years in this country where it was, she was known as Hanoi Jane. (laughs) So, but for those of us who were opposed to the war, of course, we greatly admired the courage of this man who had been, you know, really at the top levels of the U.S. government, who had the courage to take them on and say, this war is wrong and we need to stop it. So, I thought, you know, he he had written a book that came out in 70 or 71 called Crime in America. And at that was point, I was just starting normal. So I was reading every book I could find that talked about marijuana and marijuana policy. And I was impressed in his book, Crime in America. He called for the legalization of marijuana. Here's this straight former attorney general. But, you know, he understood prohibition mm-hmm. doesn't work. And so uh, I didn't know him, of course. But I'm here in D.C. and he lives here in practice. So I, it took me a, a couple of weeks to 
figure out somebody in the middle that knew him so I could try to ask for an appointment. And so I managed to get it. He was very generous with his time. And I went to explain to him what I was trying to do. And he, uh, I, first I asked him, I said, should I do this or am I being stupid and foolish and self-destructive? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, no, you should do it. It's terribly important that we do it. So he said, you don't even worry about that. And he said, also, do it while you're young, because if you fall on your face, you'll be able to pick yourself <laughs> up and <laughs> go ahead and reestablish a career. Whereas mm -hmm. if you were later and you had family obligations or but whatever, you wouldn't necessarily have that choice. Um, and as it turns out, um, Ramsey ended up being terribly important in the early years. He ended up serving on our advisory board for a decade or so. Uh, he introduced me to Hugh Hefner, who was our first founder. Wow, uh, I didn't even know Playboy Foundation. Didn't know Playboy had a foundation, but Ramsey had uh, had worked with him on some issues, and so he's the guy who ended up putting me in touch with Hefter. He Ramsey played a major role in the early years of Normal. Um, mm. so at any event, we uh, all of that has to do again. It connects back to the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So you're rubbing shoulders with some big guys there, some big names well, yeah, well, in the They were way above my level, you can be mm -hmm. sure. Um, and, and the same thing with Hefner. I mean, you know, obviously, without somebody like Ramsey Clark stepping in and introducing me to Hefner, uh, I doubt he would have ever paid much attention to, to normal. As it mm -hmm. worked out, um, because Ramsey introduced me to him, uh, I was invited out to meet Hefner and the other board members of the Playboy Foundation to explain what we were up to. And I was hoping we were going to get a big chunk of funding and, you know, this would get us off and running. Because at that point, we literally had never hadn't raised a dime yet. It was really early on in 71. Mm -hmm. And I was working out of my house. Um, and um, sh sure enough, um, after the meeting, it seemed to go pretty well. And I got a call back later saying they were going to offer us, I think it was $10,000 or something. And I thought, man, that's not going to last very long. So mm -hmm. I wasn't even certain that I should take it because I thought, what the hell am I going to do with $10,000? Even if I paid myself $1,000 a month, that wasn't going to last a year. Um, but the, Margaret Standish was a lovely lady who ran the, the play. She was executive director of the Playboy Foundation. And she could tell that I had some trepidation about this. And so she got in touch with me privately and said, Keith, you should do this. Take the money, demonstrate that you can do something worthwhile with it, and almost certainly we'll be good for some more funding. Well, in truth, that's exactly what happened. Within six months, Playboy had committed to giving Normal $100,000 a year in cash, and they did that wow. for 10 years or so. And that was big money back then for us. Plus, mm -hmm. They gave us two full-page ads in Playboy magazine a year. And those the magazine back then, I think they had 6 million subscriptions. And each subscription wow. issue was passed along to four readers. So uh, back before we had the internet and ways to reach you know mass audiences, Playboy mm -hmm. magazine was incredibly effective at that. And they, they did a lot of social action work. Uh, Hefner used a section of the magazine called The Forum, to focus on issues like legalizing marijuana. And there were some other issues they were also very interested in. Uh, it, it ended up, as I say, but for Playboy, uh, I don't know if anyone would have ever heard of us. Now, along by about 1974, High Times Magazine was founded by former smuggler Tom Fursad. 
and I had met Tom Frasad and Hunter Thompson and a few other people down at the Miami Convention cool. in 1972 in Miami. And um, uh, Tom was at that point when I met him, he was just a smuggler, but a serious smuggler. He flew his own plane and you know brought in plane loads of weed. But in 1973 or four, I think it was 74, he founded High Times and they began to fund us as well. Now they weren't funding at that time anywhere near the level Playboy did, but uh, they continue funding us, the magazine did. Tom regrettably killed himself in about 78 or something, I think about 1978. Um, uh -huh. But uh, the magazine continued to support us right up until I don't know, six, seven years ago when they were finally sold to some corporate greed heads and they, you know, high times is, I don't I don't even think they publish anymore. But once in a while they come out with some online version, but again, mm -hmm. it was sold to some greed heads who thought they could make millions of dollars and who had no identification with the culture at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the time during the seventies, eighties, nineties, and after 2000, uh, they were the main way we communicated with people in America. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the Playboy Foundation had so much to do with it. That's a, oh, uh, yes. Yes, indeed, they did. Yeah, very um, now, impressive. This, this time frame you're talking about here, you're talking about getting right out of law school in 68, and you're talking about forming this organization that would be early 70s. This is right. Uh, this literally 1970. It was in, I think, October of 1970, we first started meeting the board of directors. Right. And so you're right on top of Richard Nixon starting his war on drugs exactly <laughs> yes. at the time right, right. there. We were aware of that too. You can imagine that. What kind that, of a, what kind of problems did that create for? I'm just curious. I mean, well, um, president we was were, pretty arrogant about the whole thing. We were occasionally paranoid. You know, I mean, we recognized that there was a reasonable chance that Nixon was going to have us busted, or that you know, law enforcement generally were kind of going to come down on us. So, especially during those early years, we were very careful. We never had more than a couple of ounces. I mean, we didn't do any dealing. We, we and we assumed they would set us up. You know, they'd send somebody in to try to score a, a mm. couple of joints or something, and then bust us. But I mean, there were times that were strange. There used, I remember there was a, a year or two where there was some van that used to always be parked across the street from the normal office, and we mm -hmm. didn't know for sure that it, it was a, you know the undercover agents. But I suspect, and we did then suspect that's what it was. But mm -hmm. we we actually were never arrested uh, during those times. I've, I've been arrested twice in my life, but they were both things that I was doing on my own that were somewhat outrageous and I can talk about them if you want but it wasn't <laughs> we we actually were never set up and busted by the police mm. uh, that's a surprise and uh, you know uh it's good to hear man because that would not have been cool <laughs> well I think partly too they kind of knew uh, with Ramsey Clark being one of our key players mm. uh, and Hugh Hefner being a major supporter that they better be careful because mm. uh, we were not without the ability to fight back. Now, <laughs> we might have been fighting back from inside a jail cell, but I'm saying uh, we, we had powerful friends on our side. So I think it made them be a little more careful than they would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to say that was definitely going to happen in there because, I mean, they weren't listening to anything. I do remember uh, you, you probably you know way more about this than I will. I guarantee it. What was it? 72, the Schaefer report was issued. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that was Nick, Nixon bipartisan uh, report that told him that to not make it illegal. Yeah, it was a fabulous step. When I look back at the history of 
the the movement that legalized marijuana in this country, I, I sort of see it in three sections uh, from uh, the early days uh, until 1972 was total prohibition, very little activity uh, of any substance to, towards legalization. But the reason the Marijuana Commission came about, it was interesting, um, the Federal Drug Act had been declared illegal by our Supreme Court mm -hmm. in a case involving uh, Tim Leary, of all people. Tim had got caught with, I think, bringing 50 pounds of marijuana back from Mexico on some trip. Oof. And, you know, Tim was a guy who had turn on, tune in, and drop out. That was his yeah. thing. Um, Mr. Hayden Ashbury himself, yes. Yes. So when, when he got busted, uh, he had some good lawyers and plenty of money, and uh, he ended up getting the federal drug law held to be unconstitutional. So there were was about 10 months in 1970, up until October of 70, where there was no federal drug anti-marijuana law. However, every state had an anti-marijuana law, so it wasn't like we had a free zone. But obviously, Congress was anxious to uh, pass a new marijuana law that could pass constitutional muster. Well, there was a, there were only a handful of members of Congress back in those early years who were even willing to be seen with us or to work with us. But one of them was a man named Ed Koch. Now, subsequently, he became mayor of New York for several terms. Mm -hmm. he, he was a conservative when he was mayor of New York, but when he was a member of Congress, he was actually a, a, quite a liberal progressive member of Congress. And he had a, a young daughter who uh, I think was a marijuana smoker. So he was more sensitive to the issue than most. And he managed to insert a minor provision in the, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 that, as I say, I think was adopted in October of that year to establish this National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. None of us thought much was going to come of it. We were happy to have the commission, but you know, we it, keep in mind it was a 13-member commission. Nine members were appointed by President Nixon. Four members were appointed by Congress from among themselves. Two senators, uh, Senator Harold Hughes from Iowa at the time and Senator J Jacob Javits from New York. And uh, two members of the House. I can't remember, Harold Rogers may have been one of them. I can't remember who else. Um, and um, when the commission started, you know, we all thought they were gonna just kiss up to Nixon and they were gonna end up saying what most presidential commissions do. They say whatever the president wants them to say. Well, as it turns out, among those commissioners, one of them in particular was uh, Dr. Tom Ungerleiter. He's no longer with us, but he was uh, at, from UCLA. And he was one of the more progressive members of the commission. He had good credentials, otherwise he wouldn't have got uh, appointed. Uh, but he arranged, when they were holding hearings at different times around the country, he realized that most of the members of the commission had never seen anyone smoke marijuana. Therefore, when they, you know, when they heard these exaggerated things that if you smoke a joint, you begin to commit crimes and rape women and whatever. And turn into a bat and fly around the room. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Bad <laughs> weed. Back in the 30s, uh, uh, actually, Harry Anslinger testified that it, it makes white women want to sleep with black men. Uh, that, mm -hmm. was, that was part of what marijuana did back then. Um, <laughs> at, at any event, um, Tom realized that it would be helpful if his colleagues on the commission at least could socially mix with some adult 
middle-class marijuana smokers, not not long hairs that are going to freak them out or scare them or whatever. And so he set that up on a couple of occasions where the commissioners would be there drinking their cocktails and there would be a dozen or so adult marijuana smokers who would join them in coats and ties. So everybody felt comfortable. Wow. And in, indeed, in the end, when it came down to voting on the policy, they didn't have the courage to go all the way and recommend legalizing marijuana because I think they recognized at that point, 1972, they would have sort of been laughed out of town. But what they did was they came back with a recommendation, what we now call decriminalization, that word wasn't used back then, but they indicated they thought we should eliminate penalties for the personal use and possession of small amounts of marijuana. And interestingly, they realized by then that marijuana smokers share with each other. We, it was all uh, on a black market. So if you could, if you scored some marijuana, you'd share it with your friends because the next time your friends might have the marijuana and you want to share they, them to share it with you. So they even recommended that we eliminate penalties for the not-for-profit transfer of small amounts of marijuana between adults. Mm -hmm. Well, when that came out, Nixon was so pissed off that he wouldn't even have the commissioners come to the White House to deliver the report. The tradition in this country is if you have a, a national commission, they come out with a report, the president welcomes them to the White House and they have some sort of social event and they officially receive the report. Nixon, uh, the chairman of the, of the Marijuana Commission was former Pennsylvania governor, Raymond Schaefer. And Raymond Schaefer was a very highly respected Republican governor who wanted to be a federal judge. And Nixon was so pissed off about this report and about uh, Schaefer uh, uh, yeah, not being able to, to keep it on track that Schaefer, of course, never he could, didn't even get invited to the White House, let alone get a judicial appointment. But uh, that report was incredibly important. And that begins the second phase of marijuana prohibition or marijuana reform, in my mind. It went from the Marijuana Commission up until 1996 in the... Uh, immediate from from 72 73 to 78 when the commission only lasted two years and when they mm -hmm. went out of business there was no structure to implement their recommendations there was no institution so normal took that on and we identified any young legislator we could find around the country who was willing to introduce a decriminalization bill we would fly out four or five or six expert witnesses. So instead of them looking like they were on the edges of, of the culture or something, um, they looked mainstream. I mean, these were doctors and lawyers and one of them was a farmer number two man at the DEA. He had retired and he, he joined Normal's board. Um, they, were, they were truly effective experts. So starting with Oregon in 73 was the first state to adopt a version of decriminalization. They didn't eliminate all penalties, but they, they maintained a hundred dollar civil fine, but there was no arrest, no jail, no criminal record. Between 72 and 78, we ended up with 11 states that decriminalized marijuana because wow. of the commission's work. Now, that's when Ronald Reagan came along and the parents movement and just say no Mm -hmm. And we didn't win another statewide victory for 18 years, from wow. 78 until 96. And when we next won that victory, it was medical marijuana in California had surfaced and finally been approved. That begins the second phase, in my mind, 
of the legalization movement. And of course, the third phase would be starting in 2012 when uh, Colorado and Washington became the first two states to fully legalize marijuana for all adults, regardless of why you smoke. Mm. But none of that, I, at least in my mind, I don't think any of that would have happened, but for that incredibly important work of the Marijuana Commission in the early 70s. Yeah, work that the uh, the government at the time tried to actually bury and make go away, but thank you, <laughs> thank you to Normal for actually bringing that to our attention and making sure they couldn't bury that stuff. That's right, that's right, the, because there was no other institution pushing it other than us at the time. Yeah, mm. well, the government does pretty good about uh, burying things when they don't want it heard either, so mm. I've, I've been waiting to hear that story, the whole story, and thank you for that. Uh, that explains exactly what I've been trying. I read, I've read parts of the report. I've read theories and, and, and other articles about the report, but now I have it directly from the source. And that's exactly what I wanted. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. By the way, if, I, if you want, I'll tell you a, a quick little story that adds on to that. During the commission's early days, they announced they were going to hold public hearings. And when I saw that, it was in the Washington Post. So I immediately contacted the executive director of the commission and said, I'm Keith Strop. I, I run this group called Normal. We'd like to testify. Well, they sent me back a, a, a letter saying, uh, we're not interested in hearing from you, period. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking, man, this is going to be tough to try to present yourself as a responsible, important marijuana lobby if we can't even testify when they're having hearings. So I went back to Ramsey Clark again. And I said, Ramsey, uh, would you be willing to testify on our behalf? He said, sure. So I went back to the commission and said, former Attorney General Ramsey Clark would like to testify uh, representing normal. <laughs> and they got back in touch and said, we're not interested in hearing from you or Ramsey Clark. Wow. So at, at, at that point, I went to Jack Anderson, who at the time was a syndicated columnist, had syndicated like 1,500 papers around the country, but all the big ones like the Washington Post. And I told him what had happened. And within a day or two, that column ran in the Washington Post. Within 24 hours, Ramsey had a call inviting him to testify. And I had a call <laughs> inviting me to testify. <laughs> so what, what you learned was that there were ways sometimes you could uh, exercise a little more leverage than you realized, but you had to oftentimes use the media to accomplish that. Mm. And it must have been so difficult as well. And, you know, during those 18 years where you didn't get another state to oh. decriminalize or legalize, it must have been a struggle, like mentally yeah. as well, just trying to get through that. Well, and you, couldn't, you couldn't raise any funds. I mean, you know, if you're not mm. making some progress that you can demonstrate to people and show them the value of what you're doing, it's very hard to raise money. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, the normal, re you know, we had a very small staff during those years and came close to going out of business a couple of times. Yeah. But then once we got back to the medical marijuana issue, uh, things began to, to seem realistic, seem uh, important again. And of course, uh, it's it's we've uh, well. I, I should start by saying this: when we founded Normal, Gallup Poll had just taken their first poll, asking the American public how they felt about legalization. Um, it was in '69 when they actually asked that question for the first time. Prior to that, they did, did not even consider it an important enough issue to ask the damn question. 
But in 69, when they asked it, only 12% of the public supported legalization. Wow. 88% of the public were opposed to it. So here was this little marijuana lobby trying to achieve something that only 12% of the country approved. But over the years, and especially uh, uh, once medical marijuana surfaced and people began to see seriously ill patients who were benefiting from this, it caused a lot of people to rethink their anti-marijuana views. Today in this country, just as a comparison, we've had five or six national surveys in the last year, including Gallup, that show 70% support for full legalization. And if you ask the medical question, it's between 88 and 90% support. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably the opposite way around. It's 12% don't think it should be. Yeah, yeah, don't think right. it should be an 88 think it should be. Yeah, it's flipped we've over. We've almost flipped it around. And what it really means is that we ended up, we're winning because we won the hearts and minds of the American public. In the early years, we thought if we were going to win this, we had to eventually turn on half of America. You know, we thought that if if they didn't smoke, we're never going to get their support. Well, as it turns mm -hmm. out, no. Uh, it took a while, but over those decades, people began to realize that prohibition caused far more far more harm than marijuana. So mm -hmm. it's not just that only about, by the way, about fourteen or fifteen percent of the public in this country are self-identify as marijuana smokers yet we enjoy 70 percent support so wow. uh, we were obviously mistaken in those early years thinking we <laughs> turn everybody on but we, well, we did our best <laughs> well yeah i think you know the the, the percentage of identifying it as marijuana smokers i think that might be a little bit low from reality and they're, yeah, they're lying that, they just didn't inhale then kind exactly. of people, yeah, no? that, that's right they didn't inhale. in fact there, there are a number of other surveys where they've asked the question of uh, have you ever smoked marijuana and it comes in around 40 45 percent of yeah. the time say they have right. go more there sometime in their life but they don't identify as a marijuana smoker uh, mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I, I could see that i'll agree with that for sure yeah crazy so at any point during those 18 years where it was a little quiet you say that you came close to uh going out of business is there any point where you just wanted to throw the hat in and and quit was too much for you well uh in in fact because of some screw-ups on my part uh i had to step aside from running normal for a few years and so most of those 80s right. i was actually doing things like i was executive director director for the national association of criminal defense lawyers and i lobbied for family farmers on capitol hill and if you want to i'll give you just a short summary of that uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. At the end uh, or near the end of the Carter administration, uh, his drug czar was a man by the name of Dr. Peter Bourne, and he was a friend of mine. We had both been consultants at a couple of agencies here in D.C., and we liked each other. I knew he was privately a marijuana smoker, but it turns out he also ha had become a close friend of Jimmy Carter. So once Jimmy Carter got elected, uh, Carter had chose him as his drug czar. They didn't call it a drug czar then. They just called it an advisor on drug policy, but it was the first drug czar of sorts. And, um, you know, we worked together. I got to be friends with the Carter boys. We used to, when Willie Nelson would come into town, I'd go over to the White House and we'd ride out together on the White House bus to hear Willie. And then after the concert, I'd go with the Carter boys and we'd go back and smoke weed with Willie. Um, so... Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, those were strange times indeed. Well, uh, <laughs> at one point, we learned that the U.S. government was spraying Paraquat on mm. marijuana in northern Mexico, marijuana mm -hmm. that 
coming across the U.S. And Paraquat back then, it was a hideous thing. I mean, it's still around, but it, it, what is it? Well, it's a well, terrible poison where herbicide. Yeah, yeah, herbicide. That's right. And if you use even a, a teaspoon in your mouth, I understand it will kill you. I mean, it's really wow. dangerous. So uh, when I heard that they, the government was going to spray paraquat on marijuana, and what we heard was the paraquat was causing the marijuana to turn a gold color. Well, if you remember in those years, Acapulco gold was considered one of the best imports of marijuana in the world. Mm. Uh, with pie sticks and things like that. We didn't like domestic weed back then because we hadn't developed a market like we have now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I called Dr. Bourne and he invited me to come over to the White House and we sat down and I explained to him, I said, look, I, we just learned about this and you can't do this. Said, You're, and he said, well, Keith, you know, marijuana is still illegal. I said, well, it's illegal, but that doesn't mean you can poison us. That's crazy. That's crazy thinking. And he said, well, I don't, I don't think we're, that any of that marijuana is coming across to the U.S. But he said, we, we test uh, every month. They uh, test the marijuana they've uh, captured on the border that they've seized. And it's, he said, let me take a couple of months and check and see if any of that is contaminated with, with paraquat. Well, a couple of months later, he invites me back. And sure enough, it wasn't a whole high percentage, but it was 18 or 20 percent of the marijuana. That is a high percentage. Well, <laughs> to have a, a terribly poisonous substance. Mm, yeah. It's quite significant. Yes. As definitely. I look as I look back on it, I have to admit, we never actually had a victim that we could identify. In other words, I would have expected that we would have had, you know, tens or scores or hundreds of marijuana smokers uh, around the borders, uh, southern border might have died, but mm. there wasn't. So I, I, I don't know why that is. Maybe they, maybe you had to have more Amer more paraquat than what they had or whatever. But uh, at any event, I, I said, Peter, you, you've got to quit this. And he said, no, uh, I, you know, I can't. So our relationship became very strained. At about that same time, we were holding a major event, a normal conference in downtown Washington. And as part of the conference on the Saturday night, we had rented a big three-story uh, townhouse and we had a party with bands on two levels and probably had 300 people at the party or something. And there was, of course, there was open marijuana smoking because it was a, it was a normal party. Mm. Um, that was no problem. But um, we we're all there having a good time. And a friend comes running up to me and says, Keith, Dr. Bourne is at the front door. And I didn't, you know, I hadn't bothered to invite Peter Bourne because I didn't think he would want to come, to be honest, a, a normal <laughs> party. And our relationship at that point was pretty strained. So anyway, I went to the front door and met him and came back and we chatted for a little bit. And then this one woman, a friend who I'm still around and I we still uh, stay in touch. She came up to me and said, Keith, uh, Peter would like to snort a line of coke. <laughs> and, you know, those were back in those years where we, we a lot of us did coke as well as smoked marijuana. Mm -hmm. I haven't I haven't smoked, uh, snorted coke in many years now, but, but during those years I, I did. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, well, I, I didn't have any on me, but I knew a couple of friends who did. So I went to one of them and said, can you come upstairs with us? So here we go, Dr. Bourne and myself and a couple of friends with the coke in their pocket going up this open stairway, two flights up to a room where in that room, it was kind of our hideout room. And Hunter Thompson was there. Christy Hefner was there. 
Craig Peters from High Times Magazine. I can't remember everybody, but and there were a couple of journalists who were there. Um, so I said, folks, <laughs> now this has got to be off the record. Oh, yeah, everything's off the record. So we sat down and somebody puts out a line of coke and they pass it around. And we do a couple of those. And then I needed to get back downstairs because I was the host of the party. I didn't want to be up in the room, you know, ignoring the two or three hundred people downstairs. So uh, Peter and I and a couple of others walked back downstairs and he ends up excusing himself, said he needs to get on. And I said, good night and went on. A few days later, I got a call from one of those journalists who had been in the room and he said, Keith, um, Peter Bourne just got in trouble for writing a prescription for Quaaludes to one of his assistants, uh, a lady we also knew and worked with. And Quaaludes back then were the drug of choice for if you wanted to have casual sex, you ask somebody if they wanted to do a Quaalude with you. And if they did, that sort of meant, sure, let's let's do a Quaalude and have a have a <laughs> glass of wine and have sex. Um, so Peter had gotten caught. He had thought he was doing a favor for his staff aide and had written a prescription for her, but he had written it in a false name. And oh. somehow they got caught. So there was this big brouhaha in the paper about Peter Bourne writing this prescription. So I start getting calls from these journalists who had been upstairs and they knew they knew exactly what had happened up there. And I initially said, don't bother, I'm not talking about it. You're not going to, don't bother me at all. But at some point, the Washington Post called and remember, that was a time where we were angry about the Paraquat. So whoever it was from the Post called and said to me, uh, we hear that you were snorting coke with Peter Bourne, you know, at your party a, a few weeks ago, about that point, a few months ago. And like a fool, I said, I can neither confirm nor deny. Now, that's a lame response <laughs> that anybody who uses the whole world knows what they're saying is, yes, you're right, but I'm not going to admit it. Mm. Uh, I, I, obviously, it was a stupid thing to say. Well, a day later, it was front page on the Washington Post. Peter had to resign as a drug czar. Oh, and gosh. so within a few months, I stepped aside. I stayed on the normal board of directors, but I stepped aside as executive director because I realized I, I was tainted. I, I, they couldn't mm -hmm. accomplish anything if I was uh, running the group at that point. So during much of the 80s, I was off doing some other public interest work. I came back, actually. 1995, um, Dr. Lester Grinspoon from Harvard, who I'm sorry to say is no longer with us, but he mm -hmm. sort of was the intellectual godfather of this whole movement in this country, at least. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lester had been asked to reform the normal board. They had some problems. And he asked me if I'd like to come back and get involved again. And I, I wasn't sure, you know, it'd been 10, 12 years or something. I wasn't sure that it was something I wanted to do again. But once I got back into it, I realized, no, 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 it's a much different time now. And we can actually make some progress. We can we can win some of these battles that we couldn't win uh, 10 or 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually missed most of the worst time of the, the downtime in the 80s, came back in the mid 90s. And from there on up, uh, you know, the public sport has just been higher and higher every year. And, it, mm -hmm. it, and we haven't looked backwards. Yeah, a lot of changes. You, we can had, see, uh, you can see I made a lot of mistakes in some years. <laughs> everybody does, eh? Everybody, that's the way it is. This is how we learn. Uh, but uh, we had Dr. Peter Grinspoon on the show just last week. Dr. He, 
Dr. Peter Greenspoon. Yeah, yeah, uh, Lester's son. Lester's son. I know Peter. Uh, uh, Both of his sons are outstanding. Peter just Mm -hmm. has a new book out, I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah, we spoke about it last week. Very cool guy. He's a good friend of the show. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a terrific fellow. Uh, we there was a uh, the University of Massachusetts held a, a big honorary thing uh, in in Lester Grinspoon's honor about six months ago or maybe maybe a year ago I think it was six mm. months and I I saw Peter and all the family again I hadn't seen him for a that's so cool you've rubbed shoulders with so many people when you say Hunter was, Thompson I assume you, you mean Hunter you, S Thompson oh yes if you live long oh. enough that's what happens. Uh, <laughs> If you want a little Hunter story, I'll tell you, he was one of my uh, dearest friends. I met him in 72 at the Democratic Convention. I had gone down there uh, just because, you know, back then uh, the Democratic Conventions used to be, in fact, if you remember in uh, 80 or in 98, no, I'm sorry, uh, 68 was when they had the Democratic Convention in Chicago and they had the riots and the police beat up all their demonstrators and stuff. So uh, they decided by uh, 72 in Miami uh, that they would give the protesters a park where you could do anything you want. They, you could buy weed, sell weed, smoke weed, but just stay in the damn park and don't bother us. <laughs> well, uh, so we all went down there and, and had a good time and met all kinds of other activists. Well, the first night I was there, when the convention itself came on, I was sitting in the bleachers. There was a public section where you could sit uh, and watch things. And I, I smelled marijuana smoke. And I looked down in these bleachers and I could see this gawky kind of awkward guy uh, <laughs> smoking a joint. And I recognized him only because his uh, first, I think, five-part series on fear and loathing in Las Vegas had just been run, had run in the Rolling Stone. And so I'd seen pictures of Doc and a lot of things I'd read. Uh, subsequently, of course, I, my favorite of his books was actually Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, but all of his books were terrific <laughs> books. I went down under the bleachers and walked up and introduced myself, and he said, well, here, you want to join? I said, well, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we became friends, and shortly after that, he joined the Normal Advisory Board. So for the next 20 years, um, whenever, uh, every year or two years at least, I would have an excuse or make an excuse to to go to Aspen simply to see Hunter. I loved hanging out with him. It, there was no, nothing more fun than spending a late night at Hunter's place. Uh, it's called Owl Farm, uh, right wow. outside uh, Aspen. And uh, up until his death about, I guess it's been about 15 years ago now, I'm sorry to say, I'm still in touch with his widow. She's a, a friend. But Hunter was the most interesting person I've ever met in my life. And uh, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, I've been fortunate that I've met a lot of interesting people, but Hunter would be at the top of the list if I were asked to rate them. Well, for sure. He, from what I've read about him, he seems to be a very, well, it seems to be a very interesting guy, man. I would have loved to have met Hunter S. Thompson. I would well, love to go was, on a session with Hunter. That would have been so cool. He, he was brilliant. And mm. uh, when you'd go to his place, he wouldn't get up until maybe uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. He'd just be getting up. <laughs> And so when you got when you got out there, um, you know he'd have a he'd have a bag of coke, he'd have a, a bottle of Jim Bean. I think it was Jim Bean he used to like to drink. No, maybe wild turkey. I can't remember what the hell he drank liquor. And he'd always have marijuana, but I'd bring some of my own marijuana too. And we'd sit there and tell war stories and uh, till maybe two, three in the morning. 
and then uh, you know I I'd give out. I have to. Yeah, you being uh, a normal person, them. you'd go to he bed. A, yeah, yeah, they get some rest. <laughs> Hunter would then wake up his assistants. He always had a couple of assistants that lived there with him, and he'd start working, and he'd work until you know uh, the next morning. And that's mm -hmm. how he did his work. Um, he, he never he never did a, a lick of work when he wasn't just whacked out of his mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So did you ever do any like acid with Hunter or anything like that? Yeah, one time. Um, I'll tell you what it was. He had advised me, I don't know if it was 72, 73, something like that. Uh, he was good friends with Jimmy Buffett. And I'd met Jimmy Buffett a time or two, but didn't know him well. But uh, Hunter was going, Jimmy Buffett was getting married to his, his wife, Jane, who he subsequently divorced, but then remarried. I think they're still married today. Um, but they lived right outside of Aspen. And um, right down the road from where Buffett lived, um, oh, from the Eagles, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, the effects of age, I'm sorry to say. Uh, anyway, one of the Eagles li lived, Glenn Fry, uh, okay, lived right down, right down the road from Buffett. And so Hunter calls me and says, Keith, why don't you come out and go with me to Buffett's wedding? And I thought, shit, I, how do I pass that up? So I hopped on a plane and went out to Aspen and I was staying at the Jerome Hotel, a wonderful, charming hotel downtown Aspen. And um, he comes and picks me up, uh, he and his wife. And he has a tab of acid for me. And, of course, they had just taken a tab, a tab each, too. So I thought, well, I can't say no, for Christ's sake, a chance to trip on some acid with Hunter Thompson at Jimmy Buffett's mm -hmm. wedding. And as we get there... <laughs> In the house that they were in, there were there was a balcony up on the second floor that was open all the way around. The Eagles actually played at the wedding. I'm wow. not just the whole damn Eagles, one of my favorite groups of my life. Yeah, and they're so an awesome band. The mm -hmm. only regret I have about the acid is I don't have a real distinct memory of the evening because <laughs> 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 I was tripping my ass off. But uh, it it was one of the more special events that i ever had the pleasure of attending without that. yeah are you sure that the eagles played you know <laughs> <laughs> well, at least i i remember reading that <laughs> uh, you must have some cool stories you know spanning across the last 40 50 years meeting all these legends and doing all these cool things man war yeah. stories old, old men yeah like yeah <laughs> but good also, war stories Mm. Also, I'm I'm kind of surprised that I made it this this long. You know, I mean, I didn't I didn't <laughs> leave, my, leave my life in a very cautious manner, and I always assumed I would die young. Somehow, here I am, 79, edging up on 80, and uh, wow. still every evening when it's time for the news, I'm a news addict. Live in Washington, everybody is. I pour a glass of wine and roll a joint every evening. Nice. Well, you look good yeah. for your age, man. You're 79 you think, years old. You look very good. <laughs> did you stay healthy? Do you work out, exercise? Do you do things like no, that? No, no. That's what I'm saying. I didn't lead a <laughs> healthful life at all. Uh, it, it was mostly abusive and, you know, too much drinking, too much smoking, too much staying out late. But uh, I mu it must be in the genes. You know, mm. I don't know. <laughs> now, clearly not too much. You know, clearly just the right amount. That's what you do. <laughs> But, you know, it's like Tommy Chong. It's like Tommy Chong is like, what is he, 85 or something now? And yeah, he's, he's smoking I, I cannabis think all 83 or 85, yeah. Tommy's mm -hmm. a member of our advisory board, too. Awesome. Uh, lovely man. You know, yeah. the, the government really made a mistake with Tommy Chong. Tommy mm -hmm. had never done anything. 
for legalization back when they made the 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 movie that was so so famous but um after they busted him, remember he was selling bong pipes it was really yeah. a company that his wife and his son were running and i think it was doing pretty well well the government set him up and had him mail a bong to some state like ohio where they had some really conservative prosecutor and so he had to serve i can't remember now it was 10 months in prison or something like mm -hmm. that in order to protect his wife and son well mm -hmm. he got out of prison let me tell you Tommy got in touch with us and said, would you like some help? And we said, you <laughs> <laughs> delighted to have your help. And what I was really thinking was, where have you been all this time, Tommy? <laughs> no, for sure, uh, for sure. I remember we talked to Tommy and he said, yeah, that, that prison sentence wasn't that tough when you're in prison with, with your fans. He said he was high every night in prison. <laughs> oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Tommy's always been a, a favorite of the, uh, of the marijuana smoker crowd. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. man. He, he did a lot for the uh, cannabis movement back in the day just the, just because of the movies he made. Oh, right? without a doubt. I, mm. I don't mean to suggest that we hadn't benefited from his... his yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> we, we had, but he hadn't personally gotten involved in the politics, uh, but he did after that. So It's just so cool to have been in contact with so many people. We're very privileged on this show to be able to speak because we've had Tommy Chong on the show. Uh, you know, loads of people. We're so lucky. It, uh Tom Alexander from back in the day, he's been on the show yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, now you as well, Keith. Very cool to have you on the show, man. We're just well, very I, lucky to speak to these I ladies. tell people I'm the oldest marijuana smoker in America. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose, I yeah, that, Tommy's in Canada, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, I know that's not true because, in fact, a couple of my friends I smoke with are older than I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there's Willie Nelson as well. Is he like yeah. 90 now? Oh, yeah, he, he's 90. Isn't it 90 just turned? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He's, he's recently yeah, he's, yeah, he's he's in the 90s. The yeah. celebration he just had out in Vegas for two days or wherever they were was mm. his 90th birthday celebration. Willie's a lovely man. He's He's been a member of our advisory board since back when Jimmy Carter was president. Yeah. Wow. Has he been in the game for time, such a I long spent time. A time? I spent a lot of time on the Willie Nelson bus over the years. Awesome. <laughs> 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 So what, what are some of the best memories you've had throughout your time with Normal? Well, it, it would be hard to pick one. I think I probably mm. told you about several of them in, in my war stories <laughs> as we've been on, talking on the program. Um, certainly the chance to get to know Willie was one of the, one mm. of the nicest things. Uh, the opportunity to get to know and spend time with Hunter was terribly important. Um, I'm sure there are some others that I'm forgetting right now, but yeah. And after I, the show, you'll be like, Oh, I didn't even say that. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say one thing. I, I've, I've had no regrets, you know, in, in the sense of uh, the experience. I, I fucked up a time or two and I, mm -hmm. you know, I realized it and um, I wish I would have done things a little better at times, but uh, the experience has been exhilarating. Uh, I feel incredibly fortunate. I'm a, I was a, a little old farm boy who was likely to lead a fairly boring life, you know, graduate law school, go back home, practice law, make money and have a boring life. Mm. Well, as it turns out, I haven't made much money at all, but I didn't go home and <laughs> life certainly has not been boring. Not for okay? sure. I mean, you did mention as well earlier on when we were chatting that you were arrested a couple of times. Was, was that cannabis related? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, 
one time, the first time was in uh, mid seventies or maybe, yeah, I think about 74, 75, I was going into Canada to give a lecture. And again, as I say, I, I wasn't a world traveler. I'd never been out of the country at the time. So I treated going across the border to Calgary, it was, to give a lecture, uh, the same as I would if I went to a university in the States. And I always put a couple of joints in my pocket before I go give a lecture, because after the lecture, the kids always wanted to go back and smoke a joint. And they usually had dirt weed, you know, college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd always have fun pulling out a joint, a real joint, and just getting them stoned <laughs> out of the gourd. So I'm going up to this lecture in Canada, and I was wearing a marijuana gold leaf on my collar. I often do. I still, to this day, often wear a gold leaf. But I, I almost got through the border, uh, the, across the border, and this guy looks at that pen. He pulls me over, searches my pocket, finds a joint. He ends up having to call the student, uh, people, the students that were there to meet me. They were there to pick me up, to take me to the lecture. They had to get the lecture fee that I was supposed to get to bond me out so, wow. so that I could go give the lecture. So at any event, I go back up a few weeks later for the trial, and we knew they weren't going to lock me up for one goddamn joint. Um, mm. And so uh, Pierre Trudeau had just about that time said publicly, because he was very much opposed to the, the war on marijuana smokers. And he said, if any if any U.S. marijuana smokers want to come up to Canada and smoke a joint, they're welcome. He actually said that. It was in the right. Washington Post. So <laughs> I took the stand. My friend Jerry Goldstein from San Antonio and Aspen, he lives in both cities, but he's a wonderful lawyer. And he volunteered to represent me. Uh, we presented the Pierre Trudeau defense. He put me on the stand and I said, well, of course I was had a joint in my pocket, but <laughs> why the hell, you know, what, what else would you be doing but, uh, but having a joint in your pocket? And P Pierre Trudeau said, come on up and smoke a joint. So that's what I was doing. Well, the judge th th thought it was kind of humorous, but uh, he nonetheless found me guilty and fined me and sent me on my way. So that was the first time. So in, in fairness, I want to make it clear, most people who get busted on a marijuana charge pay a heavy price. I've been mm. fortunate because I've always had this group of lawyers around me mm. that for me, it's almost been a pleasant experience in some sort of perverse way. The other one was, I think it was 2008 or something like that. I was up at the, the Boston Freedom Rally for many years and they still do hold it. Uh, they had a big rally on one day on the Boston Common right downtown Boston in which they would get 30,000, 40,000 people, and they had several bands playing and speakers, et cetera. And we would usually go and share a booth with High Times Magazine. I was there with uh, with a friend of mine who was the normal guy at High Times. And we were in the booth getting set up, and I said to him, you want to go back behind the booth and smoke a joint? And he said, sure. So we walked back there and lit up a joint and passed it a couple of times. All of a sudden, these two guys in trench coats came running down the hill. One of them grabbed him by the shoulder. and he, He's almost my age. I think he might be a couple of years younger. And one of them grabbed me by the shoulder. And the funny thing he said was, you're old enough. You should know better. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't that I was smoking. I was too damn old to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they take us into a tent they had set up where they were mostly busting 15-year-old kids with a you know a roach or something. And uh, then they noticed that we both had these big badges on that were 
speakers, children were speakers, and they said, look, if you guys promise you won't smoke anymore here, we'll let you out, go around the park and come in the other way so you can at least speak. We, we don't want to mess with the program. Uh, and then they gave us a citation to appear in court uh, a few weeks later. Well, once again, I had a, a friend, a representative who was a Harvard law professor, and uh, Lester Grinspoon was our expert witness. And we went up there, and again, we we get to court, and the, the first assignment judge says to our lawyer and the prosecutor, he says, well, how much marijuana is involved here? And the guy holds it up in a plastic bag, and you know, it's a half a joint, for Christ's sake, probably not even a half a gram. And uh, he holds it up, and, the, and the, the assignment judge says, oh, well, if they'll just pay the, pay the court costs, then we'll just dismiss this. And our lawyer hops up and says, no, Your Honor, they're not paying the court costs, they're going to trial. And he says, well, then forget the court costs. Let's just dismiss it. And he said, no, you're not dismissing it. They demand a, a trial. They want a jury trial. Well, at that point, he realized what we were doing. We were thinking that if we could get uh, a hung jury, at least one person on the jury, to refuse to convict us, everybody else in Boston from that point forward would know, just take the stand and say, yes, I was smoking a joint. It's no big mm. deal. So once again, uh, they... They put me on the stand and or put both of us on the stand. And we said, well, of course we were smoking a joint. Why else would you come to the Boston Freedom Rally other than to smoke a joint? Well, when they got where they were selecting the jury and the judge gives the instructions about now, I know you may have some uh, strong feelings on this, but you have to be able to set them aside and render a fair verdict. This one guy raises his hand. He says, your honor, I don't care if they light a joint up on the stand. I am not going to vote to convict them. <laughs> now, of course, that's a guy we wanted to stay on. The mm -hmm. the judge, judge had to excuse him. The rest of the jury didn't take very long. They came back a few hours later and convicted us. But wow, the prosecutor wanted, of course, to get us on probation because he knew if we were drug tested, we'd both fail it. Um, and there's no, no way we were not going to smoke. So um, he stood up and started asking for conditions on, on the, the post-conviction. And the, the judge, who is a former ACLU lawyer, really understood what we were doing. He said, uh, no fine, no probation, case closed, and sent us on our way. So that's right. the two times I was busted. They weren't typical by any means, but I had a good time on both occasions. Wow, I can't believe they just sent the guy away. That, that's a bit crap. <laughs> well, you had mentioned Willie Nelson before. You probably can answer this because I've always wondered if the rumor was true. Did as White far House. as you know? Yes, White yes, House. He, he did indeed. Uh, he, he it was during the uh, Jimmy Carter years, and he smoked up, up on the roof. I think he was with Chip, one, one of uh, Jimmy's sons. That's um, what I've heard. Yeah, there was a period where when I would go places because Willie and I are friends, and they knew Willie was on our board people would tell me they'd heard that I smoked a joint with Willie on the roof of the White House. I wish I could say I was there. I wasn't. <laughs> I, I know it happened because w Willie has confirmed it numerous times, but <laughs> I'm afraid I missed that party. I wish I would have been there. I hope it was uh, a good joint. Oh, I it was Willie, so I'm sure. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but it was, man. Even the principle of the joint was good. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it was a bad joint, it's a good joint just because you're having it on top of the White House. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, you get, you get high from that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever go to the White House, Keith? Oh, yeah, but it was always not not socially. I, I went uh, several times for meetings with Dr. Bourne back before we had our blowout. Um, right. And um, 
and, and again, during those early years of the Carter administration, I socialized with the Carter sons and with some of the White House staff. So they would often charter a bus to take a group out to hear Willie in particular. And so they, it got to be where they would invite me to come and join them on the bus. And I'd ride out there. That was kind of an uh, interesting experience to be, you know, stoner riding out with the White House chief of staff and stuff. But those were different years. <laughs> yeah. It must be so much nicer for you now to be able to just enjoy a, a joint without having to be uh, arrested <laughs> oh, for it. It is indeed. I can uh, see like that. Nice. Uh, proper old school doobie as well. You see that? Oh, yeah. I roll them. So does <laughs> Willie. We roll them like torpedoes, not like cigarettes. And mm-hmm. and I always laugh when people try to roll their joints to look like tobacco or something. No, no. We prefer the torpedo. Nice. Man, we've kept you here for a whole hour now, Keith, and it's been an awesome conversation, man. I just want to thank you again for coming to join us and and to chat with us and tell you your your awesome war stories, man. It's very cool. Well, you're quite welcome. Obviously, it didn't require a lot of preparation because you gave me the luxury of telling war stories. So. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we roll. We just really want to get to know who you are and, you know, hear, hear a little bit about you. Well, mm-hmm. I hope you I hope you get a feel. I mean, I, we were very serious and still are very serious about our work, but um, I, I tried not to take myself too seriously <laughs> through all of these years, mm-hmm. and there was good reason not to because I was usually fucking up one way or another, uh, <laughs> or at least so, high, you know. <laughs> I was definitely high. <laughs> so, as a, a a person from a normal so many years what can you tell me that that would might would help me nudge my state toward legalization might help you to say again nudge my state toward moving toward recreational legalization and which state uh let's just say one of the southeast conservative states i really don't want to go further than that we're all the same down here yeah i understand um yes i'll tell you what you should do send me a note just keith at normal.org yeah. because we're a nonprofit. Send me a note and I'll give you a couple of names of people you should be in touch with or on the current normal staff who deal with organizing states in the various parts of the country. Fantastic. I will do you want me to do ta- that. So do you want me to take that email address out of the edit as well? Oh, I don't care. I okay, get so much cool. fucking email. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will get a lot more from this because yes, we do yeah. get quite a few downloads. Well, at least I'll probably get a lot from England too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. yeah, everybody, everybody, email Keith and say hi from high on homegrown. You know, <laughs> yeah. Feel free to feel free to send me a join, whatever you want. You know? <laughs> Don't do that, everybody. That's highly against the law. All right. <laughs> yeah. well, that's true. I forgot about that. Actually, in Virginia, where I live now, uh, because of Normal's work, uh, we're allowed to grow four plants uh, at nice. home. We're allowed to give up to an ounce. Uh, for no remuneration to a friend. Um, oh, nice. legal. So the last two years, I have been able to grow four plants, and I now smoke my own homegrown. First time in my life. I've oh, ever... nice. That's yeah, very excellent. cool. Yeah. Did you grow indoors? Did you grow outdoors? No, I grew outdoors. The, the law allows it. If you have a fence where the plants are not visible from the street, then you're allowed to grow it outdoors. And wow. uh, that's what I did the last couple of years. Oh, that's not a problem. I can take a piece of string and tie that thing down. It won't be any, any, <laughs> long, any taller than three feet, but it might be 15 feet long. Oh, yeah. my, my, mine were, were all, the plants were all taller than I am. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. What strain was it? There were four different strains each year. It was a friend of mine who 
works in the business, as we used to say, who oh, yeah. was growing long before it was legal, who gave me the 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 uh, seed seedlings. He brought the seedlings rather than starting with seed. And uh, they were strains that he's developed, but they seem pretty good. Nice. nice. Yeah, it must be very rewarding for you after all these years to finally smoke yeah. me your own homegrown. And especially living in Northern Virginia, where I live, whoa, that used to be it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have, you know, if you get caught, it used to be in Virginia, uh, that was like deep south stuff. You didn't want to be mm -hmm. caught with even a little bit of marijuana, but now you can grow four plants and give each other an ounce. Well, we always say that we always say that growing it is is you know twice as addictive as as smoking it. So I mean, have you got <laughs> have you got the growing bug yet? Well, I, I enjoy it, but again, yeah. I was raised on a family farm, so I'm used to growing stuff. Mm, we oh, yeah. soybeans and whatever. So, uh, but. I so, certainly it's the first time I've ever uh, grown it myself since I've been an adult because of uh, the legal risk. Mm -hmm. I understand. Exactly. Yeah. Times have changed a lot, man. I mean, I'm sure you must remember uh, John Sinclair in Las Vegas, knew, who was set down for life. I know John. I first met him when cool. uh, you know, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono held that free John Sinclair mm -hmm. rap. Don't you care for John Sinclair? <laughs> so I actually drove out. I, you know, I, I saw it was happening. And normal had only been around for a few months, but I became aware they were holding this. So I jumped in my car and drove out to Ann Arbor and uh, attended the Free John Sinclair rally. And after that, it was only a couple of weeks, and the court found an excuse to let John out of prison. So uh, I got in touch with John, and he and I and a guy named Lee Otis Johnson, who had also served several years in Texas on a marijuana fence. We uh, toured two or three states, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, uh, giving lectures at college campuses for back, probably 72, 73. Cool. And I, I see John occasionally. I would go to the hash bash. I don't go every year, but whenever I go, John's usually there. How cool. John's still around as well. Oh, yes, he is. His health is not great, but he's still around. That's and so cool. You know, he's, he's a fabulous poet. I mean, he always was. He was a he founded the White Panther Party. He was a real radical, but a real talented mm. radical. Wow. Yeah, man, it's just, it's like Forrest Gump talking to you, Keith. You know, Forrest <laughs> Gump throughout the movies, just involved oh, yes. in all these oh, yeah. different sections so, of history. You know, it's like, I bet Keith was there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, man. You've got so many cool stories. I bet, I bet Ronnie just started. I bet you have so many more as well. No, I think I'm about worn out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should let you go then keith man i mean we could sit here all day asking you questions and listen to your stories man and if you I want to come back it. at any time we, we, oh, it's always open to you just come and let us know we'll get you on and hear more stories man thank you for having me and uh if there's ever anything we can do for you let me know oh you, you've already done plenty plenty so you know thank That's you right. on behalf of the cannabis community for everything you've done man it's been crazy and, and thank you for coming here to chat with us as well that, that's awesome as well we really appreciate everything you've done keith it's been awesome my pleasure my pleasure it's been our yeah, pleasure sir indeed indeed thank you yeah you have a good night keith and we'll speak soon you yes bet. sir and i will be in touch via email thank you so much <laughs> yeah that's right look forward awesome. to from you thanks <laughs> thank you thanks keith bye sir goodbye bye now. And there we go, everybody. That was the interview with Keith Strop. We've loads and loads of war stories there. Very cool guy. 
loads of cool stories and i thoroughly enjoyed making this interview and i hope you enjoyed it as well uh, don't forget if you haven't already come and join us over at percysgrowroom.com and if you have any recommendations for anybody you would like to hear on the show then feel free to get in touch you can email me at mackie at highonhomegrown.com you can also contact me over at percysgrowroom.com or even on our discord server which is linked in the description of this download as usual, thank you very much for downloading and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to catch you on the next one, which is Friday for the Grow Guides, which is all about tolerance breaks. But for now, that's it. So stay high, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.